Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. It's the middle of the summer, but court takes no recess. It's election shock therapy, <laughs> Supreme Court Part Three. <laughs> wow, just keeps going. Oh, yeah. Coming to you from Minnesota and again South Carolina. It's the election shock therapy gang here to talk about the last tranche of Supreme Court cases. I'm Chris Moore, and joining me in this virtual hangout are Andy Bramson, Matt Kukum, Mitchell Crum. Hey guys, uh, the Supreme Court uh, went into extra time this, uh, well actually, what sport would you analogize the Supreme Court to? Are they more like a baseball team? Are they more of a soccer uh, pitch? What are we uh, we going with for the Supreme Court? Extra innings sounds kind of nice, maybe. Yeah, I I I was thinking that too. I think that's right. Okay, okay, so we're American. It's there's no time limit. You can go as long as you need exactly. to. Yeah. Right. Uh, they're just gonna uh, do what they're gonna do. Stay right. full, stayed in full of traditions. That's right. Um, exactly. Exactly. Why have we never thought about this? The numbers work out for baseball. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yep. Okay. Mind blown. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> we get, let, let's let's figure this out for a second. So the chief the chief justice, right, Roberts, is, is certainly the pitcher. That just has to be right. I mean, that's the wouldn't you say? Yeah. Oh, he's yeah. The, yeah. It's the he's the he's the pitching battery. Okay. So who's um who's who's playing catcher for the Supreme Court? It, it certainly would have been Scalia, right? Um, <laughs> I don't know because the picture and the character work together a lot, right? Yeah. They work in pretty mm-hmm. close conjunction. So, like, who who is working alongside Roberts to craft the strategy oh. of the? It's not clear that there is such a person. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, we're probably stretching tough. this analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just I just like the idea that like Ginsburg is a power hitting second base person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we're if we're if, if we're thinking about the court and its current configuration with the more conservative dominance. The I I, I suspect uh, that the liberals are more in the outfield, but yeah, um, but, with uh, yeah. with sort of mayor sort of out in left field. Is that kind of what you're going for there, Mitch? Uh, maybe. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. man. Okay. Yeah. Um, we'll put uh, we'll put Alito out in right field, and um, that's right. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> I, again, yeah. again, I say this a lot, but I feel like the T-shirt just prints itself. I think this is a yeah. thing that we could. This is this is just evidence that I'm really hard up for sports right now. This is what I'm, yeah, I'm, wow. I'm analogizing the, the Supreme Court as a baseball team. All right. Well, at any rate, it's okay. They went into extra innings, and this is the first time in a long time that the court has had opinions delivered in July, and we have four pretty significant opinions that we want to talk our way through uh, this uh, in this podcast. And so without further ado, I'm going to turn over to our two Americanists uh, and tell us a little bit about what is going on in Guadalupe. All right, I'll, I'll take this one. And Thanks, Matt. Kind of maybe trade back and forth. Okay, so so Our Lady of Guadalupe School um, was consolidated with another similar case. And basically, um, the, the overall... Let me give you some broader context of what this case is in the season and then kind of walk you through... 
uh, what's going on with this case. So this is definitely the most important religious liberty decision of the year. Um, this is even bigger than the Espinoza case, which regarded um, funding, public funding for uh, re for religious schools. Um, and also even the Little Sisters case, which we will talk about um, in in the next few minutes. Um, so because Espinoza was a little bit muddled, the Little Sisters ruling really didn't involve a new precedent. Uh, but Guadalupe is 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 a pretty big case. So this is a 7-2 decision in which the Supreme Court basically holds that the ministerial exception of federal employment discrimination laws extends to the employment of persons with a religious function at a religious institution. What matters, ultimately, the court said, um, and Alito is writing uh, the majority opinion, what matters is whether the employee has a religious function. If the religious institution, such as a, you know, a private religious school or college, for example, if that religious institution has a good faith understanding that this employee does indeed have a religious function, such as, you know, teaching, teaching, you know, students certain religious doctrines, praying with them, perhaps has some sort of religious function as understood by the institution, then the employer is exempt from federal employment law with regards to the minister, right? So originally this was, this was a, a doctrine that was established by the Supreme Court. Uh, but that existed for, for quite some time. The Supreme Court sort of took on this doctrine um, first in a relatively recent case called Hosanna Tabor, Evangelical Lutheran Church um, versus the school versus the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And basically in this case, a few years back, the court said, yes, the ministerial exception is a thing for religious institutions. Um, but there was some, some muddiness with regards to just who qualifies as a minister and who can, who is exempt from the Title VII and other sorts of um, non-discrimination standards. Um, and basically in this case, it was a pretty straightforward case. It was, I, if I remember correctly, it was like a 9-0 decision. And the reason it was pretty straightforward is because the, the teacher involved actually had like a religious like actually was an or like a minister had, you know, had the title, had formal religious training or whatever. And basically the lower courts basically said like, oh, well, you have to, in order to qualify for this exemption, um, you have to have all of these different features. And basically Alito said, that's not at all what the Supreme Court actually said in the Hosanna Tabor case, you misunderstood lower courts. And so basically it stepped in and said, there is not a laundry list of you know checklist that has to be met in order for the employee to count as, as a religious employee as exempt. What's required is simply the function. Does the employee meet a religious function? And if the institution sees that person as having a religious function, then that institution is exempt from the discrimination laws with respect to that position. And so basically what this does is this gives a very wide sort of latitude for religious institutions, including like schools and universities, um, to basically hire and fire whoever they want. So in my efforts, uh, Matt, to get in trouble, let me personalize this. Uh, three of the four of us uh, teach at Beth University, which is a Christ-centered institution, um, Christian institution. I, we all teach in the political science department. Do we serve a religious function? Bethel would probably say, yes, we do. Um, and you can look, you know, we all had to sign, you know, this thing called a covenant, right? And in the covenant, you know, there's pretty specific um, 
things that you have to sign off on regarding, you know, certain beliefs that you hold to, certain things that you will um, abide by and how you conduct yourself in your private life and in your life in the university um, and the expectation that you will um, bring sort of a Christian worldview and take the scripture seriously in your actual teaching. So yes, we would qualify um, as employees with a religious function. And that would especially, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, especially too, since, um, you know, Bethel specifically encourages all faculty to engage in, you know, I can't remember exactly how it's worded. It's been a year. Um, <laughs> uh, but basically encourages all faculty. Faith integration. Engage, exactly. Engage in faith integration. And so that alone probably probably does it. I mean, just thinking, you know, trying to say, you know, requiring people to reflect on that in their end of year evaluations and things like that probably seems to immediately yeah. make make you have a religious function. So Right. It, it is yeah. interesting, though. And here again, I'm going to push. I'm. A, I'll, you know, I'm. I'm going to uh, get my get me myself in trouble and try and take you all with me. Um, <laughs> although it makes it makes a lot of intuitive sense to me why anybody who's um, an instructor at Bethel University would um, have that religious exemption because we're integrating our faith into our various subjects, whether it's political science or theater or biology, um, for that matter. Um, but at the same time. We have employees on the grounds crew uh, sign um, a, a faith statement as part of their, uh, their, their employment as well. It's hard to imagine why they would have a religious function as part of the grounds crew or um, our bookkeeping office. Um, yeah. Those right. are purch yeah. purchasing, for example. Yeah. yeah. I actually uh, yeah. think, interestingly, I, this is kind of what, what you're point you're driving there i think is actually the key to um I'm blanking if it's sotomayor or ginsburg who wrote the dissent um mm -hmm. at any rate the dissent <laughs> authored by either sotomayor joined by ginsburg okay, okay. Yeah, so anyway. thank you anyway so i mean that's essentially her argument i mean is she she basically argues that uh what this expansion of the ministerial exception does is um, makes it too broad, essentially, mm -hmm. that it will encompass employees mm -hmm. that do not have obvious religious functions. Um, right. We might imagine somebody like the grounds crew and things like that getting swept up in this. Mm -hmm. um, and that that essentially deprives a huge swath of employees who otherwise ought to enjoy um, protections from discrimination and other right. federal laws um, from those protections. And so the, <clears throat> the core argument, I think, in that dissent is that is that basically this makes this this makes this too broad. It doesn't have yep. enough sort of guardrails um, on, yeah. on on who counts and who doesn't. I think yeah. if I remember right, it even says something like the the court is essentially trying to push religious freedom to the nth degree without consideration yeah. of other right. Um, rights that, that may also be right. impinged. Right. And that's even, yeah, it's interesting too. Like that when you get to those like those places where the, there's not a direct religious function, right? Um, you know, so Bethel, for example, we 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 um, subcontract things out, right? And I don't think those people who work at Bethel have to sign the covenant. Correct me if I'm wrong. Chris. That's correct. They do not. Um, so like, you know, we have Sodexo employees, we have whoever the people are who run our printing, right? Loeffler, right. Um, and others, right. Like them. And so it creates this really weird dynamic where it's like, well, they couldn't discriminate in that way because they're, they're, you know, secular companies that we hire for this particular purpose. But then we can take somebody who's doing essentially the same kind of work, right, and say, no, you actually have to sign a covenant for life. You actually have to live, you know, affirm this faith statement to be able to mow grass, right? And that does seem like a, 
I, I get where Bethel's coming from, but it's an odd distinction, right? Um, right? Because it's not clear what the function is, even though I agree that you can mow grass for the glory of God, right? And and that they, there is a different way of thinking about what you're doing. It's a nice, clean crosscut. That's what. <laughs> that's Absolutely. What I like a nice, clean crosscut. I was in lawn care in, in college, so. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, two and a half years. So the descent okay. is interesting. And I mean, I think, I think where, where the descent is probably a little bit more powerful is, I mean, it's not clear to me that, that someone at a religious institution that is, you know, a grass mower, for example, would fall under this. It seems that because that person would not have a religious function and you couldn't really make a good faith argument for it, that that person, you know, there might be a hiring practice like Bethel, like the, the grass mower does need to grow mass, you know, grow grass or mow grass to the glory mm -hmm. of God. Right. Um, but, but that wouldn't necessarily hold up if there was some sort of discrimination against that sort of employee. What's what's more interesting and perhaps where the dissent has more power is is what happens when a religious an employee with a religious function it makes a claim of being fired for age discrimination or you know gender discrimination or you right. know whatever else that's where that's where you get more of that real rub and i think that's huh. that's more of a, a more powerful part of the dissent and i think the response to that sort of by the majority is like you know what the first amendment is is the first amendment it's the first part of the bill of rights and the first part of the first amendment has to do with with religious freedom um and the first amendment essentially creates a different set of entities um, and says that these entities, these religious institutions are, you know, within certain areas sort of completely sovereign over the decisions they make. It's interesting that the court decided not to take a sort of a balancing sort of test approach. There was an attempt to um, basically try to weigh a compelling government interest against the rights of an organization. You get that in some other sorts of a lot of other sorts of rights cases. But here, basically, it's just straight up, the court doesn't have the ability to really adjudicate, to really make a decision about whether or not someone is for, is performing a religious function or not. We're gonna let that completely up to these re religious institutions, which are a completely different type of entity than your regular employers. Yeah. Okay, I have so a follow-up question. Make of that what you will. I have a follow-up question to that then. What's to stop Oh, let's pick on a let's let's say a certain anonymous um, large chain craft store. Let's say like um, uh, a um, a diversion narthex. Let's call them. Um, and diversion narthex decides to um, call themselves a religious um, uh, hobby store, and thereby impose upon all of their employees a um, certain, like basically kind of, you know, sort of some of these claim religious exemption because as a religious hobby store, they have, um, uh, they have this ministerial exception. Is that, is, is the court left that, that door open? I mean, look there. Yeah. Yes, they could, but I think that'd be pretty easy to sort of shut down those sorts of like, you know, bad faith sorts of, claims okay. right so yeah a, a lawsuit could you know make its way up before the court it might get shut down before that it might get it might just get to an appellate court and the appellate court's like clearly that's not what was in view even in the hosanna tabor case and we're basically saying no and there might be an appeal to the supreme court and the supreme court says yeah what the appellate court said so i mean yeah you could get litigation along those lines i think i think given what the hosanna tabor cases was originally like i don't think I don't necessarily think you're going to get a lot of 
those sorts of cases aren't going to stick very well. I, okay. I think that's totally right. And I think especially, I mean, this is where actually if we, if we wanted to jump to the other case, we could think about um, Little Sisters of the Poor where that actually becomes a more pressing issue, thinking about corporations and profit-making institutions. I do think, um, as Matt already said, that the ministerial exception particularly seems to apply to explicitly religious institutions that have a specifically religious function. And so I think that removes, and I, my, my take at least on, on, on the opinion is that the, the court is not referring to uh, an institution that is essentially a profit-making institution. Right. So, you know, so if you have something that's fundamentally a business, even if it's a business that's you know, run by religious people and those people have religious purposes and things like that. It's still a business. It's not fundamentally a religious institution. And I think the court would make that distinction in terms of applying the ministerial exception, whereas a religious school is going to be fundamentally a religious institution, um, not not a profit-seeking institution. Yeah, it has to do with, I mean, both are providing a service, you know, like, yeah. you know, hobbyist goods versus, you know, education. <laughs> but one of them is has a clear religious dimension that's that's essential, right? Right. Um, you know, you can get your, you know, your your sewing supplies from, you know, are, aren't going to be inherently religious, right? But <laughs> I, I guess one thing to note before we we move on to Little Sisters and is that this is a really important ruling. Um, so whatever you make of whether you agree with, you know, the dissent or whether you're with Lolito, it's a really important opinion because it, it clarifies a previous ruling and and do, sort of doubles down on it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and not only that, but it did it with a 7-2 majority, um, right. which which yeah. makes it a particularly sort of powerful precedent. And, and I, you know, I would not be surprised if you get um, future litigation, which tries to sort of test whether, you know, test whether or not a religious employee can perhaps really be fired for a really obvious case of age discrimination. Um, oh. That was kind of what was involved with one of these cases. It really wasn't clear that there was age discrimination, but if you had a really good sort of test case um, come up, or perhaps a case, you know, that tests, you know, whether or not, you know, the grass mower at a religious institution, um, you know, f still gets to enjoy Title VII protections, for example. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if you get those sorts of test cases, but but it's, it's a pretty dang strong decision. And I think it's interesting, and some other scholars are pointing this out, that if you sort of take Guadalupe in conjunction with the Bostock decision, Remember, Bostock is the, is the landmark case regarding the application of Title VII protections to transgender folks and, and uh, other similar sorts of situations. If you take Guadalupe in conjunction with Bostock, you get sort of this, this trend that you've seen in the court in which the court is broadening civil rights and anti-discrimination laws for secular employers, mm -hmm. so broadening those rights while simultaneously giving more independence to religious employers. So the court is sort of taking this, this sort of middle road in which sort of it's rejecting sort of the, the jurisprudence of the far left and the far right. It's saying that you can have both sort of gay rights, LGBTQ rights, and religious liberty simultaneously. And incidentally, this is sort of the approach uh, behind the Fairness for All campaign, right? In which you have, um, you know, conservative evangelicals trying to, for example, seek some additional religious liberty 
while as sort of and then trading away saying, but hey, we want to you know allow for the expansion of LGBTQ rights. So they can have their rights, we can have our religious protection. Um, and this is something Bethel um, and our former president Jay Barnes has actually been fairly involved with as well. Um, so, so it seems that you know neither side is getting fully what they want, um, but you see the court basically broadening protections for both sides within their particular areas. And, and I think that is a trend you're probably going to see more of in the future, unless the composition of the court changes drastically. Well, that's very interesting. Honestly, although even, even if the court composition changes, I mean, just the configuration of the justices seems to indicate that um, at least to some degree, this kind of compromise position has, has traction. Sure. I mean, even with, um, you know, even, again, especially with Kagan and, um, and Breyer. So, yeah, um, that's true. So, and, and again, I guess it also goes along with just saying that, you know, it does feel more and more like there is a strong coalition on the court that is pretty consistently in favor of, of those kind of religious liberty concerns. And I think, mm-hmm. um, once again, I mean, this is another case that kind of demonstrates that the Masterpiece Cake Shop case was not just a one-off thing. I mean, it's the same coalition, um, you know, a couple more times here, uh, basically siding more with on the side of religion, you know, siding, being on the side of expanding religious liberty um, in that sense. So, Yeah, I think that's right. There's a bigger question to ask here, which is not really a strictly a court question, which I, so I'll, I'll throw it out as a hypothetical, but not expecting you guys to answer. But how much do court cases uh, drive the structure of American politics? Now, obviously, we're in an increasing, a very polarized time. And so it's not surprising that we have you know, sharp divisions between um, religious adherents and an increasingly secular populace. But at the same time, the court now has set up this, as I think, Matt, as you rightly and right, clearly, clearly described, right? Increased religious liberty for religious institutions, increased uh, surveillance of equal rights within secular institutions. Is the court creating a structure inside American society which will further enhance polarization between the religious faithful of various stripes and the, and the secular society? I, I, it seems like this would help uh, sort of reify that. that yeah, vision. I mean, I think... In Robert's mind, he's hoping that this will um, lower the stakes, so to speak, and sort of take some of those issues off the table and sort of depolarize it. Like, hey, you religious people, you get your religious liberty. You don't have to sweat it, right? Um, And all of you LGBTQ crowd, you get your your civil rights. You don't have to worry about those being trampled on. Actually, we're going to expand them for you. So, So giving both sides something what they want sort of... Robert's attempt to sort of depoliticize, I don't think he actually has, but in his mind sort of kind of take take the court out of those sorts of, you know, policy disputes and try to sort of signal that um, that you can't play a zero-sum sort of politics game with the court. We're not going to play along with that sort of that sort of approach that you see on on both the far left and the far right in some quarters. Um, so now maybe that'll backfire and maybe maybe polarization will continue to entrench itself, but I think Roberts is trying to trying to avoid that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in terms of what he's trying to do, but I think it is. Um, the thing is, like politicians will try to use appeals to yep. fear. Right? We're afraid of these people. They do not have our best intent in mind. And and either you know you can fill in the blank with either the right or left. Right on that and the group that's being threatened. And I think those appeals to fear will continue. So I'm not sure how much like what Roberts is trying to do will actually matter at that level maybe it will in the long run maybe people will begin to sense oh i'm not really threatened but 
you know, even when threats aren't real, if they're real in people's minds, they impact how they vote. So, and how they act. I'm going to fold another case here, and I'm going to look specifically to Mitch Crum. Uh, Mitch, you and I, amongst other things we share in common, are uh, graduates of the Ohio State University. And when I saw the Little Sisters of the Poor was on the docket, I thought this was a Gordon Gee defamation case. Uh, <laughs> and I was really excited for, for uh, President Gee to finally be exonerated. Uh, that's a deep cut for anybody who follows college football. Um, <laughs> Mitch, what is the Little Sisters of the Poor case about? <laughs> Not Gordon, Gordon Gee. Gordon Gee's name is on my diploma, and I am proud of that. Yes! At any rate. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, Little Sisters of the Poor uh, essentially re revisits uh, the contraceptive mandate from the Affordable Care Act. So if you go back to the Affordable Care Act, um, which is now basically a decade old, um, it basically, uh, well, the, the act itself actually had fairly vague language. It basically said that, uh, that Health and Human Services and other agencies who are implementing uh, the Affordable Care Act needed to draw up a list of um, basically standard, standard um, I can't remember the words that they use, but basically a list of standard uh, care things that, you need, that, that, that insurance has to provide for mm -hmm. and that employers have to provide. What does your insurance have to cover, essentially? Um, and, uh, and because that was left open, that was essentially up to, um, those agencies who of course at the time had primarily, were primarily led by, uh, the, the Obama administration to, to essentially set out. And what they set out was, um, I mean, it wasn't uncontroversial in other areas as well, but the most controversial by far, um, decision that they made in terms of what, 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 what to include on that required, uh, list was essentially that employers had to provide, um, a, uh, a, 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 I can't remember exactly how many were on there. I think 16 were on there, different types of contraceptives. Um, and essentially, uh, almost immediately, this was challenged um, by a number of religious uh, uh, employers and most famously Hobby Lobby, um, arguing that, uh, that essentially some of those contraceptives uh, essentially amounted to abortifacients, which means that they are equivalent to, to, to causing an abortion. And that as part of their religious convictions, they did not want to be a party of providing those, um, those, those drugs. And so mm -hmm. in, Hobby, in the Hobby Lobby case, the court sided with, uh, sided with Hobby Lobby and said that because they were a privately owned company uh, whose, whose employers had religious convictions, they did not have to provide those, the particular contraceptives that they objected to as basically sort of like a... Um, uh, uh, conscientious objector <laughs> uh, type yep. type uh, type exemption and, uh, and and this went back to the court so what happened in the current case then uh, is is essentially uh, little sisters of the poor uh, uh, once again also a religious employer uh, basically running uh, nursing home type facilities and things like that um, had similarly argued that they didn't that they should not be required to provide uh, contraceptives and the court, uh, in, in Pennsylvania, the lower courts in Pennsylvania had essentially ruled against the Little Sisters of the Poor. And their argument was that uh, they were not a privately owned corporation. They were, in fact, uh, they were basically uh, a, uh, they're a nonprofit, if I remember right. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so, yeah, and so, and so if they're, and so as a nonprofit, because they don't have an owner, then Hobby Lobby didn't apply to them. And that basically uh, this, the, that, uh, that, that, 
uh, that this that this could be required of them. Right. And so this case made it back all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court in this particular case basically said, no, Hobby Lobby applies uh, across the board um, if you have a religious uh, objection, uh, and that you and if you're a religious organization in some sense, then this then 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 these exemptions apply. Um, and in particular, they were also looking at. Uh, part of the argument for the uh, from the lower courts as well was that essentially the way that that uh, that the federal government had carried this out was not in keeping with uh, once again the administrative the administrative act, and, uh, and which we've already heard from when we heard about uh, uh, DACA, and uh, that basically it wasn't in keeping with that. Um, but the court ruled that no, actually, they did follow the procedures properly, and that that this and that the exemptions that were allowed uh, actually actually should be allowed to Little Sisters of the Poor as well. Um, so that's essentially what the court ruled. Uh, this case, as Matt already said, is is significant in one way. I mean, it's significant in that it's yet another case where the court has, you know, with this seven-two ruling, uh, ruled on the side of religious employers. On the other hand, it, as Matt has pointed out, this is. You know, the court already decided about this in some ways with Hobby Lobby. It's basically mm -hmm. just saying Hobby Lobby applies to all um, religious employers. It doesn't matter if they're privately owned. It doesn't matter if they're corporate, you know, nonprofits. It doesn't matter what, so you know, what what they are. All all religious employers can have this sort of conscientious objectors type um, status when it comes to contraceptives and and similar types of medical things. Yeah. Although, hey, basic oh, go ahead. I was going to say, although that part's still up in the air. So, I mean, the, the actual ruling was pretty narrow. Basically, uh -huh. all the court really said is that the new rules that were promulgated by the HHS under the Trump administration, which basically sort of took care of the original problem, those rules did indeed, um, you know, follow the, you know, follow the administrative procedures that were necessary, and that the administration did indeed have the authority to issue those rules under the original, the original Affordable Health Care Act, which itself was extremely vague. So they're with completely within their rights to issue these rules. But the court didn't really weigh in fully and say, and, and, and said like, the lower courts need to take into account the Religious Freedom Restoration Act when trying to adjudicate these things. But the Supreme Court basically decided not to step in and issue sort of a definitive ruling for the Little Sisters. Basically, it it reversed the Third Circuit ruling and said that all of this process needs to start over. Like now the whole review process of the Little Sisters case kind of starts afresh. Um, and in in his uh, concurring opinion, Alito, joined by Gorsuch, basically held that it would have been better if the court had actually issued a more substantive ruling providing the the uh, the protections for the Little Sisters that they've been seeking for basically seven years now. They've been embroiled in litigation for, for about seven years. And that the court should have extended the full protections of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This is especially true because Pennsylvania itself was not being a good faith actor um, when they actually sued the Little Sisters. Um, Pennsylvania never identified any person that was harmed by the Little Sisters. Pennsylvania and, and the federal government already provide contraceptive coverage to women who um, don't get the coverage because of other exceptions. Um, right. to, um, you know, that, that were promulgated by the HHS. Um, and basically he said, like, because the, basically the restriction that, that Pennsylvania is seeking 
on the little sisters would place actually an unnecessary burden on them. And it's it's a rule that is that is not necessary, especially given the fact that contraceptives are available elsewhere. And I, I could go on, um, right. but but basically the little sisters are probably going to be involved in litigation for the next two or three years. I would not be surprised if their case ends up back before the Supreme Court. Right, because I mean, like Biden came out right after this and said, "Well, if yep. if I become president, right, I will go back to the Obama administration policy, which was basically, okay, you don't have to provide it, but your insurance company will, right?" And um, and they said that oh, that still is too much of our like we're too morally connected to to that that outcome. We're not comfortable with that, right? Um, and so you know, he's basically said, we'll go back to that. And so then, you know, we're going to be right back in the courts. Um, if, you know, if we have a Biden presidency, if Trump becomes, you know, he gets reelected, then presumably this gets pushed off for a, a little while anyway. So I'll just, I'll add here that this is very clearly little sisters supports Hobby Lobby. It, um, sort of stacks up this, uh, exemption of religiously based either private or, uh, uh nonprofit institutions, um, uh, in terms of provision of healthcare. I want to step outside the actual ruling for a second and ask you on a public policy level, the Little Sisters of the Poor, as a Catholic nonprofit charity, which maintains certain kinds of elder care facilities, is not a very wealthy institution. It doesn't have a huge nest egg. Where is the money coming from in some of these cases uh, to finance was essentially a decade or more of litigation um, very expensive litigation, uh, very, uh, very very expensive legal teams. Now, I'm, this is a leading question, but like the little sisters of the poor aren't exactly paying for this, even though their name is on the case, right? I'm not sure who's paying for it, but I'm sure they are receiving uh, support from uh, basically a uh, a law firm that that that, that engages in in activism. <laughs> uh, I think it's Beckett. That, Am I wrong? No, I think it's Beckett. I don't know who it is, but it's. Okay. Uh, but yes, that's that's usually how these cases proceed. I mean, these. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, most famously, of course. I mean, you can think about civil rights activism in the form of the NAACP. Um, essentially, obviously, most of the folks who had their civil rights defended would never have had the resources to have actually yeah. gone through all the litigation, which is why um, civil rights activists wisely realized that they needed to set up. Um, you know this kind of this kind of organization, and these organizations now exist for a wide range of other types of issues, uh, including, of course, religion. So, exactly. So that there are um, legal defense funds which have been set up for various kinds yeah. of, of activist causes to push these kinds of issues towards the Supreme Court. Um, if, yeah. In case you're in case you're wondering about that. <laughs> okay, so um, we've got two uh, rulings, one landmark, one sort of uh, secondary ruling on religious liberty issues. And um, Matt, you've put up here, here uh, uh, you, you've grouped them together, Trump versus Vance and Trump versus Mazar. You want to talk through how these cases are connected? Yeah, okay. So both of these cases have to do with subpoenas um, for... Um, information from from Trump, personal information. So, so the short version is that um, there's a New York prosecutor and the House Democrats in the House of Representatives are seeking personal information from tr Trump as a part of their own investigations, and presumably in hopes that they can they can do something to bring more political damage against Trump. We can talk about whether or not 
these attempts, these investigations are valid or not. But anyway, so we'll, we'll take Trump v. Vance first. So basically, this had this case involves a grand jury subpoena for um, an investigation into the Stormy Daniels case, whether or not Trump violated um, state campaign finance laws in, in New York State. So it's a sort of a run-of-the-mill, you might say, conventional state criminal case. Um, and you know, although it's a salacious one, we might. Have. Well, yeah, yeah, but but you know, the the proceedings, the procedure itself is, is pretty pretty standard, right? So. Um, there are a lot of headlines about how Trump is now going to have to fork over all of his documents. That's actually not true. Basically, uh, what you're going to see is you're going to see um, this case get remanded back down to the lower courts for for further litigation. So basically, there was there's a couple of questions on the table. Um, so one, one question is, is the president absolutely immune from sort of state criminal proceedings? That was and that was basically an argument that the Trump administration was was making, like no president. Presidents are completely immune from state criminal proceedings. And the court said no. Now, this is a 7-2 decision, but actually all nine justices said, no, <laughs> the president is not completely immune. Um, so they they just completely rejected that. Now, the, the next question is, if the president isn't actually absolutely immune, is there a heightened standard for the president? And the court again said, all of them, no, there's not a heightened standard. Uh, presidents are not exempt from a very old and general requirement that all citizens abide by a criminal subpoena. And they go all the way back to a case in which... Chief Justice John Marshall required <laughs> Thomas Jefferson to give up documentation um, with regards to th that was related to the treason trial of Aaron Burr, the guy who killed <laughs> nice. Hamilton. Right. So that was way back, way back. This this is sort of a very old precedent that was established by the court. Basically, the court said, no, the president isn't completely immune and no, there isn't a heightened standard. However, however, uh, that said, the president can still raise challenges to specific subpoenas, not general challenges, specific challenges. The president can do this on the grounds of the supremacy clause, which allows pushback against states. The president can also issue challenges in the courts on the grounds that complying with the subpoenas would somehow impede the president's constitutional duties. Perhaps if the courts were, you know, required the president to fork over really sensitive information that would have an impact on sort of state operations. National security is the issue. Yeah, national security. So neither of those are probably going to fly very far with regards to the information regarding campaign finance payments potentially to Stormy Daniels. So, but the court isn't going to weigh in on those points. It basically, you know, rejects sort of the the Trump arguments and said Trump basically has to go back into the court system and has to and and can basically come up with other objections. And so this whole process is basically going to get drawn out well past the election, um, yeah. unless there's some sort of unforeseen circumstance. So, so if Trump is reelected, you know, there's a good chance um, that this investigation will continue. If he's not reelected, you know, they, you know, the the prosecutor I think is uh, what his name is Vance um, might decide to drop. Um, but in the event that this process continues, you know, Trump will put up. We'll put up some, you know, defenses, um, and it's not clear to me that those will those will stick. There's a pretty good chance that the prosecutor will get most of the documents that 
the prosecutor is seeking. However, he will get them past the point that it's politically relevant. Yes. Assuming Trump is defeated. Yes. Well, win or lose, because, I mean, even if sure. Trump wins re-election and his tax returns become, or the Stormy Daniels it, the documents become available yeah. in his seventh year of presidency, yeah, yeah, that's it's functionally that's meaningless. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the only way it would sure. become meaningful is if it somehow, somehow he's re-elected maybe within the next year, and it becomes so yeah. obvious that there's just, although... I don't know. We've had pretty serious <laughs> revelations already, and that hasn't seemed yeah. to, to move the Senate. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, so it's it's kind of a you know it, it's great it's good for Trump because it kind of kicks it down the road. Um, yeah. But you know, it does it does clarify you know not really clarify because it's pretty obvious. You know, it basically reaffirms the idea that no, you know, this this really old doctrine. Um, you know, established way back at the beginning of the 19th century still stands, right? Um, so, so the other case um, is Trump v. This is, uh, Mazar, this is Mazar, right? Maz I don't know how you pronounce it. Uh, Mazar, Mazars, perhaps? Mazars? I don't know. It's called <laughs> Mazars. Um, so basically, this has to do with whether or not, um, this has to do with congressional subpoenas. Um, and basically, what you have here is the Supreme Court provides a really vague four-part test. It punts on giving a substantive ruling about whether or not the congressional subpoenas meet that test and basically tells Congress and the president of like, hey, y'all need to go work this out. That's kind of basically <laughs> what this, this ruling does. I mean, it's, it's sort of a weird ruling. So it was another 7-2 ruling um, in which most basically all nine justices agreed on the substance of what was going on. Um, so basically the court, um, or excuse me, the, the House of Representatives, um, really for a lot of the Trump administration was issuing subpoenas to the Trump administration for like 80 some odd different areas of investigation. Um, and in the process, you know, of seeking this information, you know, the Trump administration says, hey, you can't have any of it. And this is a sort of a, a typical thing that happens between sort of Congress and presidents. You know, the president claims executive privilege and Congress says, no, you can't do this. And they sort of, you know, hash it out in the lower courts and usually come to some sort of compromise. And as Roberts noted in, and he wrote the majority opinion in this case as well, he noted that basically this sort of case has never reached a Supreme Court before because the Congress and the president have always come to some sort of compromise before. And basically he said, y'all need to do that in this case too. Um, and what he did is he said, you know, he kind of gave, um, house sort of Democrats a slight slap on the wrist saying, you know, some of these, um, some of this, some of the subpoenas that um, you're seeking um, clearly have nothing to do with um, with what's called sort of legislative purpose, right? So the House can issue subpoenas as a part of its normal over, and the Senate can issue subpoenas as part of its normal oversight process um, for the purposes of crafting legislation. Um, basically, a lot of these subpoenas had nothing to do with. The crafting of legislation it, it was just clearly a pretext and basically roberts issued sort of a four-part test um, that the courts have to apply to determine whether or not these um these subpoenas do in fact pass muster um but these tests the tests are really vague and um at the end of the day roberts didn't come down and say whether or not the house rulings truly um, meet these or not and said we're kicking this back to the lower courts to decide which basically has the effect of, again, punting this down the road, allowing the Supreme Court to avoid weighing in 
um, on what could create sort of a political firestorm. Um, and this is only going to be resolved, you know, eventually, you know, past past election day, if at all. Yeah. And then well, some, one other thing, the one other thing I'll say please. is that if the Democrats had sued on the grounds that of impeachment, that the subpoenas were for the purposes of gathering information for impeachment, basically, which would have been their best argument, basically, you would have had a completely different outcome. The courts would have said almost certainly unanimously, yes, you can get whatever you want under the auspices of impeachment. You can't do that, however, under the auspices of the oversight power. But that's what that's how they sued and and they lost. So it was bad strategy on their part. But anyway, I'll, I'll shut up now. No, I think that's exactly right. I, I, that was that was one of the main things I was going <laughs> to point out. There was that. Yeah, I mean, the the question of impeachment is the is the central is is kind of the central one here. Um, and I do think that. It, it, it basically, it, without the question of impeachment, it really does raise a serious separation of powers issue had the court genuinely ruled on this case. I and mean, if they had actually come down solidly, e either way, really, if they had come down solidly on the side of the president or the side of Congress, that it arguably would have um, essentially been the court, uh, you know, weighing in, on, you know, essentially limiting one or the other co-equal branches of government, which is obviously not something that they that they want to do. I mean, this is, they want to respect the boundaries and the, um, and that's sort of the sovereignty, if you will, of the, of the, of their, of, of their fellow branches. So, um, so at any rate, yeah, I think, I think the court probably felt that they didn't have too much, uh, ability to rule solidly one way or the other. Well, the short answer to this, I think, so my, my role, and I think maybe Andy's role to a certain extent, is thinking about the political impact of some of these cases. And so, honestly, with this, I think that the overall headline from both of these cases are um, Trump gets thrown out the clock on these requests, right? Yeah. Um, this is, uh, the, the court has ruled, but the court has essentially ruled in such a way. And that Congress doesn't has work with our baseball analogy. There's no clock. It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, how about how about this for a baseball analogy? There's always next year, right? Um, <laughs> it also raises the question that maybe Congress uh, jumped the gun, uh, or that should the Democrats in Congress jumped the gun on impeaching the president um, because had they more judiciously used the impeachment power at their disposal, they might have uh, um, might have brought this to bear. Um, but as it, as it was, that was there's a there's a political window in which they could act on that on that issue. So, um, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. I, I'm going to ask. I know I know Mitch's response to this, but Matt, Andy, do you guys like musicals? Um, I don't like musicals. Like, and I like like I'm going to commit to that statement. I like certain yeah. specific musicals, um, such as. Yeah. Um, I enjoy Sound of Music. I enjoy Fiddler on the Roof. Nice. Yeah, um, good. Yeah, there's, there's so there's a few, but. Um, okay. I wouldn't generally say I like musicals. <laughs> do, do, do you guys know what musical I really like? What musical do you really like, Chris? I mean, as, as a political scientist, I'm required to like Hamilton. But you know what else I like? Yeah. <laughs> Oklahoma. Oh, wow. I like Evita. Do too, you really but... like Oklahoma? It, it, it's, it's real. It's, it's kind of problematic to say yes in this moment, especially. There's some, uh, at least especially in the original <laughs> version of the, of the uh, musical, yes. there's wow. some problematic racial tones. Um, specifically with respect to uh, to Native Americans, um, and so oh. 
I want to be careful about how I say whether I like Oklahoma or not. I really like the music of Oklahoma. How's that? Okay. Um, I've, never, I've never watched that one. So, um. But it was ringing in my ears as uh, I was hearing about McGirt versus Oklahoma. So it's been in my head. And it's, it's, it's Neil Gorsuch is the reason I have an earworm right now. So I'm just going to put it that way. So, All right. so as, as Matt or Mitch talks about this, maybe you could sing softly in the background. It'll be kind of like an altar. Right. Uh, altar nope. Chris Moore will continue to sing as we talk about McGirt versus Oklahoma. <laughs> exactly. Be the soundtrack. I can harmonize. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, am, I, I need your guys' help. Besides getting this earworm out of my head, I also <laughs> need help understanding because this McGirt versus Oklahoma, I understand what the ruling was. I don't know what to make of this and what the implications <laughs> are. So um, this is a 5-4 ruling with Gorsuch uh, joining the liberals on the, on the bench. Talk to me, uh, uh, Mitch, about what is going on in McGirt versus Oklahoma. Okay, so on the one hand, I think there's a very simple and straightforward way to understand this case. Please. And we'll probably start with that. Um, <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right to say that the implications of this case are just mind-bogglingly complicated. And I'm not even going to begin to claim that I fully know what what the implications of this case are. So the short answer and the, and the simple answer on this is that, uh, is that essentially this, this was a case where um, uh, 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 McGirt had committed a series of, of uh, pretty serious sexual offenses against a minor, uh, a, a very young child in fact, and uh, was convicted and was sentenced um, for, I think for like life in a thousand years or something like that. So at any rate, he was convicted in, uh, in uh, through Oklahoma's uh, uh, courts and challenged and appealed uh, his convictions based on the idea that Oklahoma did not have jurisdiction to actually try his case because he committed those crimes on what should be considered um, part of a uh, Native American reservation or an Indian reservation. And so, mm -hmm. uh, and so essentially uh, that was his appeal. His appeal worked its way um, up and uh, the, the question of the case really turned on how much of Oklahoma um, actually still is a reservation, how much of it is, should still be under tribal control, and, uh, and how much of it is not. And there's a lot of complicated legal issues, some of which we could talk about if you want, but the bottom line essentially is, and, and where Gorsuch really hinges his decision, is going all the way back. I mean, he has this really uh, evocative, like, opening page or two where he goes back and discusses essentially the history of the Trail of Tears and goes through and says, you know, this is this, you know, this was um, a, you know, a horrific act by the United States government. And the only, I, I can't remember exactly how he phrases it, but like the only sort of like redeeming aspect of that whole episode was that the government made these extremely solemn promises that, uh, that essentially this land would be, um, you know, would belong to the Creek Nation essentially forever. And they have these really strong statements in the treaties that say, you know, this is, this is going to be yours forever and you will never infringe on your sovereignty, etc. And then, of course, as we all are aware, those treaties were pretty flagrantly violated. And Gorsuch essentially says, um, but, so, so yeah, so they were violated. But Gorsuch essentially goes back and looks at those and says, there has never been a specific law. There has never been an act by Congress that actually abrogates or undermines those treaties. And so he says, if you are strictly looking at the law, and this is where Gorsuch is the textualist, or perhaps, you know, with, with Matt's argument, the more literalist... <laughs> 
um, view to things here, right? He goes through and says, um, you know, I'm just reading the laws. There's no law that says that this land has ever not been a reservation. And the mm -hmm. treaty is extremely specific. Um, and in fact, no one contests that the treaty is very specific. And he actually notes that, you know, nobody, everybody concedes that the treaty is super specific. It says that these lands are part of the reservation. And so he says, therefore, since there's no law that says they aren't reservations, we have a treaty that very specifically says they are, then they are. And mm -hmm. that's sort of the simple way to, to see this case, right? Is Gorsuch is just strictly reading the laws, saying this territory that's been clearly established ought to still be Native American lands. Um, where it gets, so that's the simple side. <laughs> where it gets extremely complicated and mad or somebody else can jump in and add, throw in more wrinkles, but there, there are at least two or three wrinkles to this. So maybe the first wrinkle, which is brought up by Justice Roberts in his, in his dissent, um, is that while, yes, there isn't a single law that says these lands are no longer part of a reservation, there's a whole series of laws and actions and court cases that indicate that. Um, that sort of assume or seem to presume that these lands are no longer part of a reservation. And while Roberts kind of, you know, uh, I'm not saying he doesn't fully acknowledge it. I mean, he kind of notes that some of these were extremely bad faith laws and actions that were taken, you know, in violation of the treaties. Um, right. Nonetheless, they've stood for like basically a century. And so Roberts goes through and catalogs a huge number of, of different types of laws and actions, probably most significantly um, the breakup of uh, uh, essentially of tribal lands into private property. Um, that's one of the major um, aspects of that. And so Roberts points out that, look, you know, this stuff happened a hundred years ago and the assumption has been that all of this sort of conglomeration of acts um, has essentially made a de facto situation where we all know and the courts have assumed and all government entities have assumed that these lands are no longer reservations. And he says, you know, basically, even though, yes, Gorsuch is right on this one sense that there's no single law, there's this whole you know, mountain of <laughs> other mm -hmm. of other things that sort of indicate this. Um, and so that's the first big wrinkle, right? Is that the, you know, there's sort of this preponderance of precedent and actions. And then the other wrinkle, of course, is the practical side of this, which is also what Roberts is getting at where he says, with this action, this throws into question just um, innumerable number of uh, convictions and uh, other court rulings that have taken place. Mm -hmm. It throws into question who controls various aspects of a huge amount of territory in Oklahoma, um, including a uh, significant portion of the city of Tulsa itself. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it raises all of these questions that, uh, you, know, you know, I think in some ways we've, always, we've talked a lot about how Roberts is trying to depoliticize the court. I think this is one of Roberts' biggest nightmares because it's the court sort of saying, we are now inserting ourselves into a, what will amount to a, probably a pretty significant political battle um, over the nature of what this means for the state of Oklahoma and, and other states as well, who also have uh, right. you know, probably pretty flagrantly violated uh, treaties. Yeah, I mean, this opens, I mean, I, we made the analogy of, you know, bucket of worms or whatever. This is, this is like a giant pool for, full of worms. I mean, because because then all of a sudden, you know, how how does this, you know, apply in other cases and other states, as Mitch noted? And I think Mitch is exactly right about Roberts. You know, Roberts is, is trying to sort of take the courts out of like controversies that have especially <laughs> messy consequences and that are create these firestorms um, and create all sorts of other legal problems. Right. Um, and, and it's interesting. This is 
one of only two cases this entire term in which Roberts has been in the minority. Right. Right. Wow. He, he has yeah. been in the majority every other time, like 96 point something percent. Um, 63 to 65 any, cases. Yeah, wow. more than any other justice, wow. right? And so it's interesting yep. that he's the minority at this point, and he's the one authoring the dissent. Um, and as Mitch noted, he basically says, like, look, you know, like here, here are all this whole stack of laws and regulations and things that have that have, you know, basically taken this treaty out of play um, just because Congress right. hasn't come in and very specifically said this treaty is no longer in force in very explicit words doesn't mean that it actually still is. Um, and as some people have pointed out, um, not even the creek understood that they had a claim to this land. It was kind of a shock to them. Oh, we can make we can make a claim on this land. So they they joined in the legislation. Um, it, that's why you never saw any legislature, excuse me, any lit litigation over this for the past yeah. hundred years. Right. And so maybe to take kind of pick up with what Mitch was saying about the practical consequences. Um, basically, what this suit does is it basically um, says that anywhere on this on this land, which is basically half of the state of Oklahoma, yeah. anywhere on this land, this land is a reservation. And so this means that any alleged crimes that occur on this land by someone who is Native American, of course, who counts as a Native American, who doesn't for the purposes of this, like how much percent do you have to be? That's a whole other thing, but that plays in here. He was a Native American who had committed an alleged crime on this land. They no longer are going to be tried um, within sort of state courts. Um, they are going to be tried um, within tribal courts for lower level crimes. And for felonies, they will be tried in, in a sort of a weird conjunction of tribal courts and federal courts. And criminal law for Native Americans and reservations is just mind-blowingly complex. Almost no one really understands it. You really have to be a specialist. So I, I don't understand it. But but basically, you're saying this now applies to half of Oklahoma. Now, now if you're a non-Native American and you you know you know commit some sort of crime supposedly in Tulsa, like it won't matter, right? You're still going to be tried in the normal way. But what this does is it's going to create sort of a you know basically a whole second sort of legal system for people with this status in basically half of Oklahoma. So this affects criminal law, this affects potentially all of the um, crimes that had been committed on the in the past on this. So you could see all of those relitigated and tossed out. Um, this affects a lot of other things as well. This affects um, tax law. <laughs> um, so you're talking about, you know, states and municipalities potentially using losing huge chunks of money, depending where they are. This affects environmental law. This affects divorce, family, adoption law. I mean, this, as, as Mitch said, I mean, the, the implications are just mind-blowing. I remember reading this case, and my jaw just hit the floor. I'm like, holy smokes, this is just fantastic in its implications. Um, and and it, it's going to take Oklahoma and, and the courts decades, I wouldn't be surprised to really sort out everything. Wow. Yeah. So, well, whatever you make, whether it's good or bad, it's it, the right. implications are serious and they're complicated. Yeah, I, th I think there's a couple of things. One of the things that I was, uh, one scholar I was reading about when I was looking at this case was noting that one interesting thing about Gorsuch is he actually is from the West. Mm -hmm. And that that has yep. probably played a difference. I mean, just that he is more sympathetic, yep. actually, to Native Americans having um, encountered these kinds of cases and, and uh, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, basically the law of, 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 of reservations and things like that before. And so in some ways, um, 
it may actually be that you know this is this is this is part of his uh you know yep. his shaping in some ways yep. absolutely um, well if i can go even further than that mitch um so uh back in the 1819 or sorry the 2018 2019 uh, supreme court <laughs> term uh a similar case to, to mcgurt came before the court sharp versus murphy but it was oh. deadlocked because gorsuch had to recuse himself because right. prior to coming to the court, he was uh, indirectly involved in that case at a lower right. court. Uh, yeah. And yep. so that case was deadlocked. It went back down to the lower court. And now they found a different case he wasn't directly involved in, and that was McGirt. And so he was now able to rule, and he ruled basically in favor of Native American interests. And I think this is, I think this is significant. I mean, this is, at the very least, if, if his term on the court ended today, this is the top line in his, his impact yeah. on the court. Yeah. Yeah. And it is interesting. I mean, I think, you know, if nothing, if nothing else, I mean, it, 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 it's, of course, hard to sort of like be fully pragmatic and say, is this going to be good or bad? I mean, everybody always right. wants sort of like a headline, you know, is this nice or not nice? Is this, and, and I think, you know, I mean, there's going to be, right. And so, you know, I mean, especially in a case this complicated, I mean, that's going to be yep. really hard to suss out. But, um, but I do think, I mean, if you want sort of a positive line for this case, um, it is, a, and I think Gorsuch is trying to force this. I mean, it's a real reckoning with, uh, you know, with with the actual law and treaties that the United States government signed. Yeah. And you know, I think part of what Gorsuch is saying is um, there never has been the sort of reckoning. Um, yeah. The United States has never made good on these treaties. Um, the treaties were signed and acted on in bad faith, and the government ought to be held accountable for that. Um, and so I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if nothing else, Gorsuch is basically saying, um, you know, you don't just get to write treaties and then ignore them and act like they aren't there. You have to actually abide by your word. And so whether this was the, a good or bad way to do that is another question. Um, right. But nonetheless, yeah. I think Gorsuch is pretty, you know, is taking a pretty serious stand that, you know, um, the, the rights of Native Americans matter and the, mm -hmm. you know, the rights that are specifically stated on the page matter. Yep. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. right. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, there's there's this great money quote. I'm not usually into reading quotes, but there's this money quote um, from Gorsuch. <laughs> yeah. He says, you know, the federal government promised the creek a reservation in perpetuity. Over time, right. Congress has diminished that reservation. It has sometimes restricted and other times expanded the tribe's authority, but Congress has never withdrawn the promised reservation. As a result, many of the arguments before us today follow a sadly familiar pattern. Yes, promises were made, but the price of keeping them has been too great. So now we should just cast a blind eye. We reject that thing. If Congress wishes to withdraw its promises, it must say so. Unlawful acts performed long enough and with sufficient vigor are never enough to mend the law. <laughs> to hold otherwise would be to yep. elevate the most brazen and long-standing injustices over the law, both rewarding wrong and failing those in the right. Mike, drop. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Of course, like, and now I'm on summer vacation. <laughs> <laughs> See you guys. So. Oh, so I mean, but, but you know, basically Congress made a promise and, yeah. and yeah, keeping the promise is extremely yeah. messy. Yeah. And so Congress, this is your problem. Um, yeah. 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 Well, it, it is, but it's also interesting because it's now, of course, it was it's, federal, problem. it's yeah. Oklahoma's problem more than it's yeah. Congress's problem. Right. Yeah. And that I think is a, a whole nother level of this, but I guess, so practical question, cause I'm just try, trying to wrap my mind around this too. I mean, does this mean that like anybody who's not of native American descent who has property, then could lose their property. Like, does that mean yeah. that it becomes Native American property? How does that work? Like, because that's what it seems to me. If it's Indian land or Native American land, right? Um, it 
should be their land. So there's, there's lots of interesting questions here. So for example, yes. one of the things that Native American groups have suggested is that they may claim jurisdiction over um, water usage and sure. um, yeah. environmental standards within these yeah. within these properties. Yeah. That doesn't quite rise to the level of taxation, but certainly the level of regulation. Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep. I, I think I think in terms of the property questions, part of that is um, it's probably going to be extremely complicated. But there are yes. um, essentially essentially if you go back, and this is part of what Roberts was getting at, um, some of the private property distri distributions were still done in some ways with the Creek Nation, and so those probably stand at least to some degree. But okay. I think that's still an open question. I don't want to claim to be yeah. Yeah. For sure, yeah, it's really complicated. It's very complicated, um, and uh, and I don't think, yeah, I don't think Gorsuch has come close to answering those those questions. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's the craziest so. case of the year, hands down. Yeah. So, anyway, it's, yeah. it's pretty wild stuff. Yeah. But. Yeah. Wow, fascinating. The short answer to your question, Andy, and I, I hope I'm right on this. So guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, over a century ago, in in 1906. Uh, when uh, when Oklahoma was legislatively incorporated as a state, some right. of the issues of property were resolved in uh, right. Oklahoma's incorporation documents, okay. and that and that at the time addressed land held by Native Americans, but the treaty granting those lands to the Native American tribes was never abrogated. Okay, right, interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting too. Like, I, mean, I think the one of the one of you raised, maybe Mitch, um, the question of like, what, who counts as Native American, right? I mean, under this scenario, but I think that becomes a more important question. Um, and it is interesting. I mean, like, it depends on. You know, I, I'm sure there's different standards, different places, but um, sometimes those are actually pretty thin in terms of like how Native American people are. So, for example, I went to college and when I was at doing my master's at Baylor with a couple of students who were of native American descent. Now they were pretty distantly. So, right. They were like one thirty second native American, but it turned out they were just one generation removed from qualifying for a bunch of scholarships. Right. So it turned out like the, the magic number for a lot of these scholarships was one sixteenth, Right. Um, and so these are people who are not necessarily deeply, um, you know, deeply part of a native American community anymore. Right. But, they still have that right to claim, right? So I think it will raise some really interesting identity questions too going forward of, you know, does this cause people to go back and look and say, well, which which identity is it optimal for me to, to kind of identify with here, right? Right, because different areas of law are going to have different requirements for yep. eligibility, right? Yep, absolutely. So you might have to be, you know, one half or one quarter, right. you know, or, right. or maybe right. just one sixteenth or whatever would be yep. sufficient. It's going to yeah. depend on the area of law. Yeah. Um, and of course, at and some point, family records themselves can be kind of murky, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yep. for some, oh, some yeah. people, like, and the tribes themselves have different yeah. interests and different yeah. standards for whom yep. they admit to the tribes. Yeah, right. So. Yeah, right. Yep. Right. And maybe that's the easiest question, is it, or the easiest answer is that tribes themselves decide who counts, right? But yeah. yeah. Well, guys, this is super interesting. I have to ask you now: I, Have we reached the end of this court session? There's one one other thing the court did, um, which yes. is, which is uh, essentially rule uh, that uh, essentially decide that they were not going to intervene um, to prevent federal executions. Yep. Uh, and so the federal government has just uh, just executed someone for the first time in 17 years. Uh, and so uh, that that case, um, Barr versus uh, 
Daniel Lewis Lee, if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, he uh, basically uh, the court. It's a per, it's a per curiam opinion, which means that it doesn't actually have an official author. It's probably Roberts. Um, I don't know. Do we know officially if it's Roberts, Matt? Do you know? I don't. I didn't look into it. It's okay. possible. I'm, I'm, anyway, um, it was a five-four. Five it was a five-four decision. Yep, which uh, once again split on the liberal yep. conservative blocks. Um, yep. And uh, basically, what the uh, procurium opinion says is that uh, um, all appeals have been uh, exhausted, and uh, that that there is not enough evidence to say that this is a you know that that. Uh, that this is a cruel punishment, and in fact, the court um, almost pretty much has never um, ruled any specific punishment as sort of like cruel and unusual in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and since lethal injection, I mean, there's Roberts gets into some more details on this, but he says since lethal injection is pretty clearly not um, as cruel and unusual, we might think of as like hanging then therefore sure. this is obviously constitutional under the eighth amendment. Um, and so sort of a very um, classic originalist style argument um, there. And, and so therefore they, they go ahead and authorize the, the execution. Oh, I guess the only, the other significant thing is too, is the, the opinion points out that these are, um, you know, the crimes that these uh, folks are convicted of are pretty serious. Um, all right. of them involve the murder and abuse of children um, and things like that. And so, yeah. Um, so at any rate, uh, the dissents are, are also interesting. Um, uh, I think it was, if I remember right, it's, uh, Breyer, one of the arguments that he brings up, uh, is essentially that, uh, you know, when we, when we talk about justice, when we think about cruel and unusual punishments, one of the things to think about is the length of time that these people have been on death row mm -hmm. and that these convictions took place in most cases a couple decades ago. And that it is, in fact, he argues, cruel and unusual to have somebody um, essentially contemplating their own death for, for, for 20 years and then, and then to finally kill them. Um, and so he argues that, that basically, unless the process can be streamlined, um, that executions basically shouldn't take place, um, that, that's, that that's something there. And, of course, he also marshals evidence, um, and I, I believe Sotomayor also um, looks at this closely, that, 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 in fact, the lethal injection is cruel. Um, and there's are some reports that essentially simulates drowning and things like that. So there are um, questions in that way about the about the actual mode of punishments uh, as well. But nonetheless, uh, the court. Well, I guess actually the one other interesting thing about this, um, uh, and I think this was in uh, Sotomayor's uh, dissent. Or no, 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 sorry, not Sotomayor. It's Kagan. It's Kagan. I think it's Kagan who brings this up. Um, I don't have it in front of me, so. I can't. <laughs> but at any rate, um, in in the dissent, uh, it's, it's either it's either Kagan or Sotomayor. Uh, I argue that basically three months ago, the court remanded this back down to the lower courts to consider the evidence and to consider whether this counted as might count as a cruel and unusual punishment, or if um, all appeals have been properly exhausted and things like that. Um, the lower courts actually held an injunction and said that. Um, they had serious reservations about cruel and unusual punishment and, and these questions so the executions ought to be held. Um, but now when it got back to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court just overruled the lower courts. And so basically the argument is, why did we remand this down to the lower courts? If we were just going to ignore what they determined and their fact-finding and gathering of, uh, of the realities, why did we actually, why did we do that? Why didn't we just rule three months ago that we, you know, we're going to allow federal executions? Um, 
And so, and so there's, you know, so basically raising the question of whether the court is actually in some way, like basically acted in bad faith, that they said, yes, we want you to consider the evidence and consider the realities. And then once the realities were considered and it went a direction that the majority didn't want it to go, they said, nope, actually, we're going to ignore those and go ahead with what we think is right. Um, so it's an interesting argument, and then basically chastising the majority and saying, "Look, if we're going to make a substantive ruling, we should at least have oral arguments and have a real case instead of just dismissing this." So, anyway, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, those do seem like fair critiques, especially like why remand it if you're not going to respect right. it. Yeah. Yep. It seems to me again pushing on a public policy level here, that even though over time, the number of executions in the United States has dropped, this is one of those political footballs where it's going to be hard to imagine uh, the federal government anytime in the near future taking uh, execution off the books, uh, getting rid of the death penalty, for example. Uh, this has been a push for many years um, uh, by activists opposed to the death penalty, but for all kinds of political reasons doesn't seem likely to be going anywhere in the, in the near future. Eh, I don't know if Biden wins, the Democrats get um, a healthy majority in the Senate. It's possible, especially if it's attached to something, you know, some must pass bill. It's possible. Don't you think that becomes the poison pill, Matt? It could, um, but I mean, but just the number of people who are opposed to the death penalty has been steadily increasing. I mean, yeah. public, I mean, yeah. it's uh, yeah. public opinions just definitely moving one direction on that. Um, so especially amongst Democrats, like, so, you right. know, I, I guess some, some, you know, purple state Democrats, Democrats from rural areas could get hammered for it, but eh, it's, it's, you know, not only is public opinion moving sort of away from support of the death penalty, but it's just not a salient issue for a lot of people. I think that's fair. That, that's what I think is true. For, um, it's, it's not salient but it's also easily primed, right? It's easy to draw a picture, to point out that the kind of people we execute often are accused of very lurid, very horrid crimes. Yeah. And so it's very easy to, I think, manipulate public opinion on, on this matter. Yeah, I mean, the sort of people who do eventually get executed, I mean, are convicted, whether rightfully or wrongfully, we can talk about that in individual cases, but are convicted of pretty heinous crimes. It's kind of worse to the worse. Um, people don't naturally feel a lot of pity um, for that. So, right. I, I should just say, though, too, actually, I just remember one other thing from the dissents <laughs> that, I, that I think bears on this. And that is that, um, you know, in, in the case of um, da uh, Daniel Lewis Lee, he actually had an accomplice um, in his crimes, and the accomplice was just given life in prison. And so part of right. the dissent yep. basically says this is just another example of how the death penalty is essentially arbitrary. Capricious. And uh, it's capricious, right? We, we kill some people and then other people who do the exact same things get other punishments. So right. you know, why, why, do we, why, why would we kill some people and not others? And so, mm -hmm. um, and I do think, I, I do wonder, especially with the push for criminal justice reform, if those kinds of questions do get pushed forward. I think there's, yep. you know, you, you know, uh, you know, Matt, Matt was already saying that there's movement in that direction. And I think, you know, I think it's become even, even beyond Democrats. I mean, there's a real question, I think, um, yeah. for, for a lot of people as to, at least in the way we carry it out. I mean, if you ask people sort yes. of in the abstract, should people be executed for certain crimes, you'd probably get a pretty substantial number of people who said yes. Yeah. But in the way that we carry it out, as soon as you start pushing on the details in any way, yeah. I think most people are pretty quick to say no. The way that yeah. the U.S. carries out the death penalty right. is is not is not good. It's not acceptable. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, we do have kind of a worst. I mean, worst of all possible worlds in some ways in regard to the death penalty, right? Because it's like, on the one hand, you could just get rid of it, right, and say we're not. We're going to take that option off the table. We're not doing that. We're not going to be that kind of country. Or you could do it and say, no, this is appropriate for really heinous crimes, and we're going to consistently apply it for these heinous crimes, right? Right. And we're, you know, we're going to apply it in an expedited manner where you know you're not going to have people hanging out in prison for twenty to thirty years and then execute them, right? Which is often the kind of thing that happens, right? And so I think Breyer has a point. I mean, you know, if if you're going to do this, right, you need to find a way to do it um, that it, it's frankly done better, right? And if you can't do that. Um, it raises real questions. I mean, because the other thing that comes up here, as it does with our whole criminal justice system, is, you know, the race issue, right? I mean, like that, you know, there are really horrible crimes being committed by the people on death row. But again, it is, you know, you're more likely to get executed um, if you are a minority, in particular African-American, right? Um, and that raises real concerns, too. I mean, like, what's going on with that, right? Um, that doesn't seem right either, right? The same crime should result in the same punishment, regardless of what, what race you're, right. you're from. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's um, a big part of, of again, why why this issue is, is, is moving, um, you know, again, of course, particularly Democrats, but even beyond Democrats, I think there's an increasing awareness that, um, you know, as with as with as with many elements in the criminal justice system, uh, you know, there is there is not really equality under the law um, and how these things are are carried out, and that that, you know, that 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 should concern that could should concern everyone. Yeah, yeah. admit. Go I was just going to say, you know, if we're thinking about this from public policy perspective um, and sort of institutions, so you know, perhaps you know the you know if if the Democrats win control of the whole thing, um, you could see some legislation that says the federal government is not going to is not going to have the death penalty as as an option um, right. for punishment. Um, but there's still some states that have that law, those laws right. on the books, and so. So the federal government can say, hey, we're, we're not using this in federal cases in which the federal government has jurisdiction. What will be more interesting is if, you know, there's sort of a federal government tries to sort of implement a law which says the states can no longer do this right, using yeah. sort of the cruel and unusual punishment clause from the Bill of Rights, in which case that gets thrown to the court and the court has to then sort of make make a call like, are we going to incorporate this and apply it to the states with regards to the death penalty. Um, Because it's the states, of course, where you see the death penalty having been used um, historically much more because states still have jurisdiction over most of the violent crimes. Um, There's weird oddities in which the federal government might have jurisdiction for whatever whatever reason. Um, I think they tend to get more jurisdiction in um, like, kidnapping cases and that sort of thing but like most other like violent crimes or whatever are within the purview of the states so anyway so it's a it's a federalism question like so many other things <laughs> like so many yeah. things one thing i was going to add is um if you want a, a really good take on kind of concerns about the death penalty and told in a really like a kind of compelling story format um that really i mean i think it hits you at the gut level but it also has a lot to hit you at the intellectual level um, Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy is really an excellent oh. book. And, um, I, I read that last year and it was, I think he's just very compelling in the way he tells the story. He tells real, real stories, but he's also kind of interspersing it with kind of like, here's the kind of big structural issues going on with our, our criminal justice system in regards to, in particular, the death penalty. Um, so worth a read um, to add to your, your summer reading list. 
And since we're at that stage, Andy, uh, I'll have since you kicked us off. Um, as you head into the summer, uh, past the court, guys, do you have any other summer reading recommendations? And while you're thinking about it, I'll I'll, I'll throw mine on top of Andy's here, along the same lines as Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. Um, I would recommend a book um, by by a friend of mine. Um, I went to graduate school. Uh, with Kalila Brown Dean, and uh, Kalila has an excellent book um, uh, out this last year called Identity Politics in the United States, and a number of issues, including issues of um, incarceration, as well as um, some of the court cases we're even discussing uh, in this podcast are dealt with in this book. And so um, I highly recommend Identity Politics in the United States by Kalila Brown Dean. I've been uh, reading uh, color, the Color of Law, um, Color of Law by Richard uh, Rothstein, mm -hmm. and uh, I know that's kind of an older recommendation. It's probably, um, you know, uh, but at any rate, I, I've actually um, I, I've been assigning uh, an, an interview and a couple of like short pieces by um, by, by him for a long time. Uh, but I haven't, I've never actually gotten to the book itself. <laughs> so, um, so I'm getting to the book. It is fantastic. Actually. Um, the hmm. book is really well written. It's very, um, you know, it's a very compelling read. Uh, one of the, and, and of course, I mean, the basic argument of the book is that a lot of times we make this distinction between de facto and de jure segregation. And he's essentially arguing that that's a false distinction. Mm -hmm. um, that even most of what we think of as de facto segregation has enormous amounts of government policy that have that enforce it and put it in mm -hmm. place. And so therefore it's essentially, you know, when we see segregation, it's almost always the case that there is some form of de jure um, cause behind it. Um, so at any rate, and he has actually one of the things that I just really love about the book and that I think is great is I, I think I think because I have a later edition, I think this is I'm not sure if this was in the originals. Um, I just don't know one way or the other. But but at the very end, he has this like FAQ um, section where he just takes on like common objections to ideas behind racial justice. And, uh, you know, that basically whether what he says um, uh, you know, sh should really lead to some kind of policy changes. And it's all kinds of fascinating stuff like, I wasn't alive then. Why does this apply to me? Or uh, questions like, uh, um, you know, what, 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 if, what if I don't actually have, you know, racial hatred in my heart or things like that, you know? So like all sorts of these kinds of questions and objections that I think he's probably had to deal with, right? And he's witnessed, um, he actually has really pithy, and I think really well thought out um, responses at the at the end of this book. So if nothing else, even if you actually aren't interested in de jure and de facto segregation, just getting those sort of like pithy answers to these common objections to um, racial justice, I think is worth the price of the book because um, they are they are really well done. So. Nice, great. Well, I've oh, over the past. Um, I don't know, over the past, I guess, since COVID started, especially, well, really for a long time, I've been wrestling with um, just this sort of growing phenomenon of people sort of separating into different camps, being polarized, sort of going back into their tribes. Um, and, you know, even smart people, perhaps especially the smart people who read the news, right? Um, and, and you know, seeing this play out, um, um, you know, in the, the public policy responses to COVID, seeing this play out in the responses to the Floyd killing and all the discussions we're having on race right now. Um, and so book that I'm um, basically almost finished with right now, it's, this is another sort of slightly older recommendation is Righteous Mind. Um, 
um, by Jonathan Haidt. Um, it's a fantastic. Yeah, mm. I figured Chris, you would especially like that one. It's it's fantastic. Um, he it's it's kind of a it's it's not super scholarly, but he really draws a lot of scholarship. Um, however, um, and does a fairly interesting dive into sort of the sort of the the psychology behind you know why people actually sort of do what they do you know it turns out people are you know primarily driven by their intuitions and by their emotions um and the the rationality that they come up with for you know their their policy positions or beliefs or whatever are it's it's done in a post hoc way people develop you know these post hoc rationalizations for for the positions that their group holds and he kind of unpacks what that looks like um, right. And in, a, I think, a really intelligent way, he delves into um, how, you know, liberals and conservatives have sort of different kinds of moral codes and the conservative moral code is actually more complex and kind of delves into that. That was something I never thought about before, which was very interesting. So it's a, it's a really good book. Um, I think it's something he, he takes both sides of task for different things, um, but he does it in a pretty winsome way. So um, it's not a short book actually, um, but I would, I would highly recommend it. Um, the Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Nice. I don't agree. A I D T. I believe. Yeah, so. yeah. I don't agree with hate on everything, um, but I, it's one of those books that gets in your head, and yeah. uh, once you kind of think about his moral logics, you start to. I guess the best way I could say is it allows you to create empathy for people with whom you disagree, right? Because you can understand oh. the moral logic behind how they arrived at their at their position, right? Yep. Yeah. And that's something I've already done quite a bit of thought about in, in a sort of am amateurish way and something I talk about in, in my classes and have been doing for some time. So it's nice to actually do a little bit more sort of reading along those lines. So, yeah. All right, guys, we have to get outside. The sun is shining. Uh, Does the sky, have a the sky is clear. Well, and, oh, okay. Do you have a recommendation beyond Just Mercy there, uh, Andy? Oh, that's right. You said Just Mercy. That's right. I forgot. Yeah, well, I, I think I mentioned that Lily, um, Liliana Mason book, um, Uncivil mm -hmm. Agreement, but that, that is a nice job. If you want a more kind of political science-y um, take on that, I mean, kind of really, you know, classic political science literature, um, I think she does a nice job. It's actually relatively short. It's a little repetitive in places, um, but she does a nice job of showing how um, the way people think is increasingly shaped by the tribe they identify with and, and that the goal of politics um, is increasingly more about winning and less about policies. Um, and that has a lot of really problematic implications. Um, so um, it's, and it's like only about 150 pages, which is nice. That's short for a political scientist. We tend to be much longer winded. <laughs> and of course you could always watch Hamilton on Disney plus. Yes, <laughs> I don't have Disney Plus, but <laughs> um, I think they have like a thirty-day free trial there, Andy. You can sign up for it. There. Okay. Except um, they removed the free yeah. trial because they knew everyone was going to use it for Hamilton. That's right. There yeah. you go. See. They did those <laughs> those scallywags. All right, um, guys, you can always uh, get in touch with us at um, electionshocktherapy at gmail .com. You can also uh, email the channel channel 3900 at gmail.com and please subscribe to the channel besides election shock therapy we got a lot of great stuff even this summer uh we have barrett fisher and uh, sam mulberry doing video store which is fantastic we've got uh, uh sam and annie Berglund doing a uh, tweet victory and uh, i'm continuing to try to weasel my way into the tweet victory well um hopefully i can get out there again pretty sometime soon we'll have plenty more stuff coming up this fall especially in a covid related world we find that 
especially for extroverts like me, um, I, I, I'm just uh, lurching towards any kinds of social interactions that I can get. So uh, there'll be plenty more things uh, happening on the, on the channel. Go ahead and subscribe to it. Thanks for listening. Thanks, uh, Mitch, for joining us for these last three podcasts. Uh, and guys, uh, next time I see you, hopefully what I can say again is go Royals. Go Royals.